Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Prejudice exists in almost every human context, often without our knowledge or understanding. Accepting that concept, we're left with the question, how do we overcome prejudice and not stereotype people? Our guest in this program is psychologist Dr. Jim Cole from Ellingsburg, Washington. Dr. Cole and I discussed diversity training, training to become aware of one's prejudices, be they racism, sexism, ageism, or something else. This program was originally broadcast in November of 1993 when Radio Curious was called Government Politics and Ideas. Jim, welcome to Government Politics and Ideas. Thank you very much, Barry. Jim, uh, we learn prejudices uh, just as dogs learn to salivate when we ring a bell um, at, the, at feeding time. I'd like to talk about the result of some of those learned prejudices and how they um, uh, result in bigotry and prejudice, racism, sexism. Tell us your thoughts. Well, it appears that when we are distracted, when we're not paying a lot of attention to what's going on, we tend to behave out of those stereotypes. And our society has a lot of stereotypes about different populations or different groups. And many times those aren't very accurate, or they may, they are, at least aren't dependable. And when we're busy and we're thinking about something else, we tend to act out of the stereotypes rather than act out of what we might decide to do if we were using our judgment. Let's talk about some of what those stereotypes might be and uh, how we learn them. Well, I think that they found that the people who have strong prejudices, uh, a racial bigotry, they don't know any more negative stereotypes about minority groups than people who don't, are not bigoted. But we learn them through all kinds of things, through the media, through our parents, through our, you know, all the people around us. We look at... What I like to use is some that aren't so loaded. Uh, if we look at two groups, uh, a couple groups I use sometimes as illustrations, is we can take these two groups. One group has a stereotype of being caring, of being gentle, being loving, and that whole group is used as a symbol in that way. Another group has a, uh, a identity of being a wicked, sneaky, vicious, and these two groups uh, have these identities that really aren't accurate at all because we look at the groups. Let me just give you those two stereotypes, and there's two groups. One group we call uh, has, a has rea in reality, uh, they don't have close family units. They, in reality, the male doesn't help take care of the, of the young. Uh, in reality, they're very vicious to each other and they can kill people like us if we even get in their area and get close to them. The other population has tight family groups. Uh, even uncles will help in the child rearing. And if we look at those two groups and what identities they have in, in relationship to the stereotypes, uh, it's real easy to, to uh, understand. Let me now give you the identity of these groups, the wolves and the bears. There's not a known death by wolf on, in, northern, uh, in North America. But yet they're symbolized in our society as being evil and vicious. And they're, what they do is they stay up late and they make noise. 
and they make and they and they stay in their tight little groups. They avoid people. They give us a lot of opportunity to make myths about them. And bears don't do that. So it's uh, more opportunity to have stereotypes about wolves. And if you look at Peter and the wolf to the to the werewolves, there's lots of myths. There's lots of stereotypes about wolves that are all negative. Well, let's relate this then to uh, social interaction and, and people. Well, I think we have a lot of those. With people, we also teach them to the people. If we say that um, a person within a specific group is more likely to be a criminal, we also teach that to the people within that group. And we begin to expect it. We begin to behave toward it. And those expectations are real powerful. Well, what would you... Clara, or classify then, or as some of the dynamics that um, are common to sexism, racism, ageism, homophobia, xenophobia. I think that they're all, you know, the dynamics in all those things are very similar. The stereotypes vary, but the dynamics of the stereotypes are very much the same. Uh, within the dynamics, we have different differences also within the whole process of being prejudiced. There are some people who have, um, what we might say, they have been punished, they have had difficult childhoods, they've had inconsistency, and they have a real leaning toward, it's kind of like we look at computers, they've been hardwired toward behaving in a prejudicial way. Most of the rest of us would be more like comparing to software. We've got, we're running, we're running on a program that, that has bad stereotype information. And the conditions that bring about these two kinds of behaviors or people to respond from different ways uh, are quite different. I don't know if I've made that clear for you or not. Well, let me, um, let me ask it from a uh, different perspective. Um, uh, what brought you to this study? Uh, and two, working in um, the field of um, cultural diversity and identifying prejudicial thinking and stereotypical thinking. Tell us a little bit about your personal experiences. Okay, I've uh, worked in Alaska for about 20 years with the University of Alaska and counseling with uh, students up there, a lot of Alaskan natives. Uh, during the 60s, I was a student in California and I was involved in some of the civil rights things there. Uh, I think what then happened as a psychologist working with students in a counseling center, I would quite often listen to people who were the victims of sexism, uh, victims of racism. And I became fascinated with it. And besides being real concerned about the amount of pain that people are suffering as a result of real inappropriate uh, applications of these prejudices. And what did you do to um, make this your life's work? Well, I started writing in the area, uh, reading and studying it, and uh, just started spending more time with it, and I've gradually moved into it uh, more full-time. How can a person um, who really doesn't think that he or she is prejudiced or has uh, stereotypical um, views about groups identify those groups? I think that if we, if we go over very quickly over a number of different groups that we can identify, 
and we think of what are the first associations we have, the first things that come to mind. Like if I were to say uh, gay to you, and you were to say the first thing that, you know, uninhibitedly say the first thing that comes to your mind, and we just repeatedly did that. Or if I were to say a whole list of, of groups, and you think of the first word that comes to your mind to associate with them. I think that if you, if you went down honestly and think of, okay, blacks, uh, gays, uh, New Yorkers, and associate the very first thing that comes to mind without trying to inhibit it, you'd find somewhere along the way that you have some associations that would in some way limit that group or not be accurate about that group, some kind of stereotypes that you've learned. Well, let's follow that up. When you say New Yorkers, it makes me think of people who eat standing up. What do we do with it at that point? Well, I think it's a, it's a matter of looking at it and saying, well, are these accurate? You know, do, can we test that out? And if you go on believing that, is it going to affect anybody? Is it going to affect anybody in a, in a way that limits them? If we look at a group and say, those people are lazy, if we look at a group and say, those people are dishonest, or those people tend to um, be such that we can't trust them, I think that's quite different. Well, See, those people eat standing up. That might be accurate information about a large portion of them. Well, I, I got that idea when um, I was, I guess, five or six years old walking down uh, a street in Manhattan when I was there with my parents on, on a trip and saw many restaurants where people would eat standing up. And uh, I've always wondered about that. But is that a, a valid example of uh, using our first impressions or our first experiences as a... Um, basis for subsequent impressions or comparisons in the stereotypical formations? Well, I think what happens is we tend to generalize, and it's a real important part of the whole process of learning, that we get a stimulus and we, and we identify it and we associate it with, with people, and then we generalize it. And I think it's real important to look at that and see, you know, where is that valid? When we start doing it about other people and groups of people, we can very quickly get in a situation of limiting them are behaving in ways toward people that we would want people to use to behave toward us. Well, then how would a person, um, one, identify that they are um, bigoted or prejudiced in a certain area where they don't really know it? Um, and then how do they go about handling that? I guess that's, those are the two big questions. Okay, I think you can identify it by you know, going over Repeatedly, an easy exercise is get a whole list of group of people and get together with someone who's a member of your own group and then take turns saying whatever it is, the group, the, identifying the group. Say, if you and I are together and I say, women are, or just women, and you say the first thing that comes to your mind just as quickly as you can. And I say it maybe five or six times and we go on to the next and you do them with me. If I begin to say some things that limit people, that restrict people, that describe them in some way that is inaccurate, that wouldn't be really fair to say about all members of that group, then I've got them. Then I've got some stereotypes. And I think it's not something to be ashamed of because we've picked these things up before we could really make evaluative kind of decisions. Talk about that for a little bit, about how people pick up those... Uh... Well, it's very much like... It's an easy association. We pick them up. You know, to think of us not picking them up would be a little bit like um, 
a little bit like going swimming and not getting wet. You know, it's part of our culture. Uh, to feel guilty about it would be like feeling uh, ashamed to be using a fork to eat rather than chopsticks. Uh, it's part of our culture. These things have been so much of what we've grown up in that we don't need to feel guilty for them. But we do need to be able to, to look at them and evaluate them from our own perspective in today's world. And then the hard part is to reduce them. How do we reduce them? I think there are several ways. I think it ta it's dull because it's a simple kind of learning. It's not learned through any kind of insight learning. We can do a lot of experiential kinds of groups where we can become aware of them, but awareness doesn't reduce that kind of learning. Awareness may develop some insights where we can practice something where we can become aware of it later, and that will be helpful. But I think there's a lot of things we can do. We can uh, get little phrases we say to ourselves when we encounter people, that we might say something quietly to ourselves to repeat something. Uh, we may, the, one of the best things is increasing our exposure to people who are members of that group, increasing our exposure to be able to talk about it. I think it's real, the, one of the biggest hurdles is when we start feeling guilty about it because guilt then brings avoidance. Avoidance, then we have less contact, and the most likely, we're most likely to use those kinds of prejudices when we have little contact and we encounter members of that group when we're not paying attention, when we're not focused on it then we are able to or likely to behave out of our stereotypes. The stereotypes are the things that take over when we're not thinking about it. Jim, let me um, take a moment here and tell our listeners that my guest this week is Dr. Jim Cole, a psychologist from Ellensburg, Washington. We're talking about uh, discrimination, how to identify our prejudices, and how to overcome them. You're listening to Government Politics and Ideas. My name is Barry Vogel. Jim, when we have the dynamic of um, uh, people who maintain prejudicial beliefs, uh, even though they're committed to not being prejudiced, um, how does one work with that? How does the person who does not want to be prejudiced um, get around it? Okay, I think that there's several things that need to happen there, Barry. I think one of the most important things is to accept it and admit it. You know, of course I'm prejudiced. I grew up in a very prejudiced world. Uh, of course I've learned to, you know, these kinds of stereotypes. How could I not? Then I think it's important to go on beyond that. You know, one thing is to recognize, and you, then I think we can take action. But we really can't work on it if we don't accept that we have it first. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, going back to the um, uh, McClatchy News article that uh, first uh, drew my attention to you, uh, you're quoted as saying that about 15% of the population try to be prejudiced and that their bigotry is very closely identified uh, to their identity, almost that it becomes a personality disorder. How do we know when we're dealing with a person like that? Okay, the things that will bring about a prejudice response will vary. If we're talking about people who are behaving out of stereotypes, that behavior is most likely to occur when they are distracted, they're not paying attention, when they're thinking about something else, and it's not 
a, a thing that they use much initiative for. It's something where uh, a person may lay change on the counter if they're uh, a che working in a checkout booth or a stand. They may lay change on the counter for one person and they put it in a hand for another. That kind of stuff, they're not focusing many times. They may be distracted and that prejudicial, that, that subtle kind of thing interferes. That's quite different than people who have strong, bigoted sort of ideals or identities. With those people, they behave most likely in ways when they feel threatened. Like when uh, George Bush went to Japan and was talking tough against the Japanese and their economics. And he returned and then a, a man was killed. A Japanese-American businessman was killed in Camarillo. That kind of thing, they behave out of a defensive stance, and they're threatened by situations that are from that other group they don't know anything about or know very little about. And so the, the behaviors are very different. The behaviors that are behave, coming out of stereotypes are much more passive. They're damaging and they're harmful, but the people are not as active when they do them. And they're not, not motivated strongly. They're coming out of uh, a weak motivation, but it's a sustained, uh, habitual kind of thing. The others uh, usually come with a strong anger, a strong fear. There's a lot of motivation behind them, and they're very resistant to change. Well, let's talk about this then in, in two circumstances. We, we have... Um, the people who are motivated to be bigoted and the people who are passive, passively bigoted. How, in an educational setting, how do we deal with those two groups? Okay, they need to be dealt with differently because what we have with those who are behaving out of prejudices, out of stereotypes, we have simply a separation many times. They'll have ideals that are above or more idealistic or more humane than the behaviors that they are, are exhibiting. And when those behaviors are below, say they're, they're behaving in a way that's not nearly so idealistic as they're, as they're committed to, there is a motivation be, to bring those two together, to, to bring one's behavior more in line with their beliefs. There's constantly a pull to be more the person I believe I should be. If we look at the other group, they don't have that. They don't have either that motivation, or they don't have the ideals, or the ideals might even be below, if they have them, they may be below what they're behaving in. So what happens is if I have high ideals, Barry, and I'm behaving in a, in a more prejudicial way than I think I ought to, I have more guilt, I have more uncomfortable feelings. And if I can heighten my awareness of what I'm doing, then I tend to behave more like my ideals. On the other hand, if a person has no ideals, or their ideals are even below and less humane than their behavior, we don't want to try to close that gap. Can, can you, um, let me interrupt you here for a minute and ask if you can give us some specifics uh, in, in an average daily situation to, for your example here. Okay. I'll try to get a little more concrete with this. What we have is what is oftentimes in common literature referred to as backlash, where people go out and try to reduce prejudices, and they actually increase prejudices with some groups. Those are the ones we're concerned about that are bigots, 
that have strong prejudicial beliefs and identities. Can you give us some concrete examples, a real-life situation? I think there was an article recently in the Seattle paper saying that, they, that the ferry system had just completed a prejudice reduction program, and they had gotten all the girly calendars down uh, through the ferry system, but they had a lot of more uh, hatred in their jokes toward women, a lot more hatred about and anger. So there's a, you can't, if you start to force people in some areas, you get what is commonly referred to as backlash. Well, how do we account for that hatred of the girly calendars or, uh, or the absence of the girly calendars, which is taken out against females? Okay, what's happening is some, the stronger the person's identity, essentially the more comfortable they are with differences. And if we have people who have been, there's a lot of um, prerequisites to developing a strong, bigoted kind of personality, but if we have people who have been punished a lot, who've had inconsistency as children. Essentially, we have people who have a, a weak identity, and that weak identity is threatened by differences. And the more they have been punished, the more inconsistency they've had as children, the more easily that is threatened. And then we have some people who are simply threatened by a different way of being, a different way of other people believing. They're threatened by a different way of other people appearing. And that difference threatens their own identity. Jim, um, as a trainer in the area of prejudice reduction and an author and a teacher, you've traveled around the country a great deal. Uh, what changes have you seen in, let's say, the past 10 years or so on this topic? Do you find that our nation is becoming more prejudiced or uh, less prejudiced? Or what, what do you see? I think we're moving in two directions, and we're becoming as we are in many other areas, we're going to be becoming more diverse. I think diversity is the nature of nature. And diversity, you know, all species become, you know, when they're larger and stronger, they're more diverse. And I think on this particular area, we've got a lot of problems. At the same time, there's a lot of enthusiasm within some people to try to reduce it. But essentially, what's happening is as people are running in with enthusiasm to attack this problem and to reduce prejudices, they are inadvertently at sometimes increasing them. Uh, they're getting what's commonly referred to as the backlash, but what it is, is they're threatening people. And that threat, that idea that you ought to be different than you are, will increase prejudicial responses within a large portion, within a population, about 15% of the population. Do you see... Um the increased diversity as the direction in which the United States uh, is going on this issue, or uh, do you see another focus? Well, I think that there's, there are things to look at that we can be happy about or excited about, but there's also some real frightening stuff. The uh, hate crimes are on the increase every year, and after a long debate in the Senate where hate crimes were then going to be recorded by the FBI, we find that of 60,000 law enforcement agencies, only 3,000 reported because the Senate required the FBI to collect the information, but they didn't require the law enforcement agencies to report them. So 57,000 law enforcement agencies did not even report. So what we're finding is that, that 
kind of subtle, quiet resistance to change is pretty widespread in our society. It's very widespread. And so that, I think, is a major problem. So often we look at, and it's very easy to focus on the hate crimes, upon the really overt things, the illegal things, but most racism or most prejudicial acts are very subtle. They're very subtle, and they're not even illegal. So we can't, I think we have approached it on many times as trying to make it illegal. And we can't make people, uh, we can't really change it by making it illegal. We have to look at what people really want. And if we're pushing people, we're going to bring about resistance. We have to approach it differently, I think. Jim, um, you have seven books in print and have received uh, very favorable comments from Desmond Tutu uh, from South Africa and Abraham Foxman, the director of the Anti-Defamation League of B'nai B'rith, uh, Maggie Kuhn of the Grey Panthers, the Dalai Lama. How do you meet these people? How do you get your work to them? I simply mail it to them. I haven't met any of those people. <laughs> I've... Uh, Desmond Tutu is using my book, Filtering People, in South Africa. And he is using it with the people that he supervises. The book is about a, the development of prejudices, and the main character is a uh, Caucasian. And he was using the book for uh, the people down there that he supervises because he's most concerned about the prejudices within the clergy that he supervises. He wasn't attacking or trying to approach the prejudices within the opposition, which I think is real important. So often we look at reducing other people's prejudices first. And I think Desmond Tutu did something uh, very fundamental in trying to reduce prejudices among those people that he's closest to first. Jim, uh, while we're talking about books, uh, I want to close with um, the question I always like to ask my guests at the end of an interview. Have you read any interesting books lately that you could tell us about? Well, I've been, thank you, that's an interesting one. I've been just fascinated with the stuff that uh, Lovelock's done and uh, James Lovelock's work and how doing that maybe we all are a part of one living organism. I'm fascinated by that. The idea that we can take a human cell out and put it back and keep it alive really has a remarkable parallel to taking a human off the earth and putting him in space and bringing him back. And I think the that now I think they have 23 systems in this whole living thing that are all self-regulated within life on earth, regulated by different organisms. And that's fascinating to me. Dr. Uh, Jim Cole from Ellensburg, Washington, uh, I want to thank you very much for being with us here on Government, Politics, and Ideas. Thank you very much, Barry. Dr. Jim Cole is a psychologist who lives in Ellensburg, Washington. His specialty is helping people overcome prejudice and learn not to stereotype people. The book that he wrote is Filtering People. The books he recommends are the works written by Jane Lovelock, 
Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.